0: Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing Nash Tsunami podcast. We broke Season two's first episode, How Will COVID-19 Affect the Fatty Litter Community in 2021, into three separate conversations. In this conversation, the first one, the surfers and our guest Dr. Manal Abdelmalik, discuss some of the key current issues surrounding COVID-19, including the British variant, the physical and emotional exhaustion that line physicians and other healthcare workers are feeling, and the implications of rising infection rates on how we deploy the vaccines. Hope you enjoy this. Hope you learn a lot from it.
1: Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast.
0: As we are trying to decide where to start the year, all you have to do is look at the newspaper stories or the television stories or pick the medium of your choice for the last couple of weeks and, and everything kind of swirls around COVID-19. Um, I think Stephen had some experiences with that on vacation. He might, he might talk about briefly. Louise was talking about what's going on in the UK. I think we're all experiencing it. But if you think about it at the same time, we have stories about the vaccine. We have stories about the so-called British variant that Spreads a lot uh, more readily than, than the original did. We've got uh, continued anti-science sentiment um, in both the at least the US and the UK, uh, two countries that I can we can talk about today. And we've got some issues that happen at the intersection of all three of those. So that's going to affect everybody, and it may well affect the fatty liver community in ways that aren't self-evident. So we'd like to spend some time with it today. First thing, each of us is going to pick one particular issue or news item for the past couple of weeks that strikes her or him as being important with some specific implications in fatty liver. And then after each of us has done that, we're all going to chat about what all those things mean for, for clinical trials, for patient treatment, and for our vision of what the new normal might be like if there's ever going to be a normal again. And then finally, in the end, we'll talk about... so what would we do or suggest other people do as a result? And that should be a pretty full program and a pretty interesting one. So let's go back to the first item. Um, brave one, go first, uh, pick a news item from the last couple of weeks. And maybe uh, Stephen, you can tell us a little bit about what you saw in Jackson um, d- during the holidays to the side of that. And, uh, Let's put on the table things that have been going on that we think are important.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll go first. So what I was alluding to uh, when we were speaking before the start of the podcast was in my trip home to Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, I was able to visit with my little brother, who is an emergency medicine physician on staff at a very large hospital in downtown Jackson Baptist the baptist hospital system and he was lamenting how literally in the past 2 months uh every day has gotten harder and harder uh more and more people come in he goes he basically was alluding to the fact that 90% of everything he sees is covid related and they're seeing you know the ICUs are full the medicine wards are full And the emergency rooms are full. People are waiting in the waiting room for days to be seen. They're being treated in the waiting room. Uh, Maybe a sobering statistic that he said uh, one of the nights I saw him when he had gotten off was he had pronounced seven people dead in the emergency room from COVID. And in addition to non-COVID related deaths that Probably could have been uh, treated had they been caught earlier. Patients presented to the ED only to wait for hours and hours with one with an MI and one with a, a ruptured A aortic abdominal aneurysm, both which uh, succumbed to their illness. So the the other thing that was interesting to see was his his mental state uh, you know he, he works about 16 shifts a month 12 hours at a time and uh, previous to COVID he would you know have periods of downtime and he would see sniffles and things like that colds now it's uh, nonstop treating people that are dying or that he pronounces dead in the emergency room and the mental Strain that, that that places on not only him, but everybody else that works alongside him, from a medic to a nurse, to a, a nurse practitioner, to another physician, is really starting to wear on the entire system. It, it is interesting to note, though, that uh, two things he mentioned to me that were, were quite interesting. He's only diagnosed two flu cases this entire season, and he's had no... RSV in children. So normally this time of year, he spends half his time, you know, giving kids nebulizer treatments and that sort of thing, diagnosing flu. And and uh, there's only one kid admitted to the hospital and that was an acute appendicitis case. Otherwise, there are no children in the hospital, which is uh, in stark contrast to every other year. But I think maybe to me, one of the recent news uh bits of information that I found interesting is this variant, the the COVID-19 variant that uh, was first recognized in Britain and now I believe in. Uh, it's spread to the U.S. It was also identified in Africa. And that is coming at a time where we're reaching new highs on daily diagnoses, new ICU admissions, uh, record death rates, only to now have uh, a variant that is significantly, uh, you know, uh, uh, associated with significantly higher rates of infectability and maybe uh, higher virulence. So uh, I think it's it's just a challenging time. Uh, you know, this is coming at the time where vaccinations are beginning to uh, to uh, uh, be given. I know uh, many of the. Providers have been vaccinated. I was able to get mine yesterday. Uh, but it's not rolling out as quickly as we would like. I think I saw a quote that by the end of the year they wanted to have 20 million vaccinations done, and only 2.1 million were done. For for various reasons, it's taking a bit longer to get the vaccinations out there. Uh, where I was able to get mine in San Antonio at the Methodist Hospital system. Uh, They had a tiered structure uh, where they gave the frontline ICU folks, the ER folks, uh, the vaccine first, and then they tiered it down to different levels of doctors and and healthcare staff. Uh, It is not opened to the general public yet here in San Antonio or even those at greatest risk, the elderly or the immunocompromised. So I, I do think They're trying to be very careful in ensuring that they actually have enough second doses to give those that receive the first. I heard talk today that maybe they're trying to uh, stretch that and and not give the second dose to some, which I think would be a big mistake. Uh, but, uh, But there's lots to talk about relative to that. Maybe I'll stop there, Roger, and kick it back to you.
0: That's an excellent and sober starting note. Uh, for this conversation?
3: So I didn't realize that Stephen and I had so much in common uh, because uh, my younger sister is also an ER physician working in a community hospital in St. Louis, Christian um, Hospital, and I had the pleasure of seeing her over the holidays, and the the story is exactly the same as what Stephen's reported. Uh, 90% of the cases she sees are COVID-related, and she was here at my home going back into patient charts and um, Uh, for patients she otherwise had to admit, and the number of deceased patients was overwhelmingly high and and sobering. Um, And it was um, startling to see the emotional, uh, uh, mental, and physical wear on our frontline providers. And and the same, um, you know, daunting concerns that uh, Stevens alluded to, um, are pressing not beyond what we're seeing on the front line, but the implications to our patients with chronic liver disease. Uh, we have also rolled out uh, the vaccination programs here. I am due to get mine tomorrow, and I'm looking forward to that. But our patients with uh, NAFLD and NASH chronic liver disease, those awaiting transplantations, certainly uh, have not had the uh, the access uh, yet in general population, high risk, uh, vaccination programs that we'd like to see. Um, and so that does pose a concern and especially with the new information about potentially a, a, even more contagious while maybe not as virulent a strain of COVID-19, but the, the, the ability to keep pace with the transmission, if we were now dealing with, uh, uh more highly contagious strains of COVID uh, does raise concern about existing infrastructure for rapid vaccination rollouts uh, and our ability to rapidly implement a herd immunity effect to protect our uh, high risk uh, populations and patients at large. Uh, but the but the stories, the the emotions, the the concerns resonate. Uh, in exactly the same way as Stephen is depicted, even uh, here in North Carolina, and and what I'm seeing reported by uh, my my sibling, who is also an ER physician. I can only echo what Manal and Stephen are saying because
4: I'm no longer at the front line in the same way, but I know lots of colleagues who are, and it is it's a war zone. Um, people describe it as that, and I think yes, the new variant. Um, was located here. I think they did some by the sound of it. They, and I'm not a virologist before, and I'm holding my head up for what I know now. Um, so, anybody correct me what I say. But um, my understanding was we had a, a region of England, southeast Kent, particularly. And despite putting in lots of extreme measures into those regions, the rates didn't fall. So, they did a deep dive by the look at. Fit into some of the samples and there was a sample collected in September which when they got around to it in October showed this variant um, strain so I think they called it VUI 2020 12 stroke one because it was a series of mutations of genetic coding now there was, appears to be two particular Mutations on that um, one is the N five zero one Y, which sits on the spike protein, um, which appears to have changed the way the virus interacts with our cells is my understanding, and therefore making it um, it attaches to certain proteins of our own cells and makes it more infectious. Um, and there's also a mutation sixty nine um, seventy del, which um, we've it's lost two amino acids on the spike protein, so it evades the immune response. In some patients who are particularly immunocompromised, seems to be the group at risk, but they haven't identified um, currently on the data that it's any more se- it causes any more severe infection or uh, mortality. It became dominant as a variant somewhere in November and December, but, but it was only the eight uh, the eighteenth of December that our Nerve Tag, which is the New and Emerging Virus Threats Advisory Group, advised the government. So that's only, uh, I think, 15 days ago, which then led to us locking down Christmas. We were due a five-day window, um, which was reduced to one day. And actually, my parents cancelled well in advance as soon as all of this started, because they're both shielding. I think a lot of people made the right decisions. Um, There was a lot less mixing of older households. And that went through the period. Um, And Imperial College, their data suggests that this is 70% more transmissible um, on their evidence than the um, normal strain um, that we'll get. But it is the same control measures, um, and we call it hands, face, and space. So it's obviously washing your hands, um, covering your face, and keeping space, but also reducing as much social contact as we can. So a lot of people are trying to do that. Um, But currently, 144 of our lower tiers, which I presume means our tiers with less restrictions, have identified at least one person um, with that variant. So it's now rapidly going throughout the country, although it remains a real concern in the south and southeast of England. We've now gone into a lockdown in Scotland. The Prime Minister, as we've been starting has now announced a national lockdown in the UK, which is as severe by the look of it as it was in the initial lockdown and not a little bit more relaxed as it was in the second lockdown. The strategy has changed to giving the vaccinations to the highest risk individuals, but actually extending that vaccine out to up to 12 weeks for the second dose to get as many people covered as quickly as possible. Uh, with the vaccines that we've got available appears. So we've now started um, Oxford Universities and AstraZeneca. First doses were given today. So that's 62 to 90 percent effective. From the evidence that I was looking at after day 10 in the trials, there seemed to be a a real significant drop in the amount of people presenting with COVID infections, which is one of the reasons they're extending it out. That appears to be the easiest one to give. It's fridge temperature. Um, and we've got a lot of vaccines um, available of that. And we've got the Pfizer-BioNTech um, one, which people are now receiving their second doses, which may well go from four weeks to 12 weeks as a second dose, I think. But there is no current plan, as far as I can tell, despite rumours that you will be given by Pfizer-BioNTech first and then followed up by AstraZeneca um, and Oxford University, it's still a one set of vaccines that you'd be given first and second, but it will extend in most people from 12, 21 days to 12 weeks. Uh, and in fact, my parents have been given their two dates and they're 12 weeks apart. Um, so we're going by the look of it to maximize the amount of people that we can get with a, a resistance um, of around about 62 to 70% within 10 to 20 days of having that vaccine which I suppose a lot of people um, are backing and agreeing with from the medical world, because we need to stop the spread of this variant quicker. That's where we are at the moment. Uh, But the UK, and I think like anybody's health resources are responding astronomically, because we've already got 730 vaccine centres, vaccination sites already established, And we look to get over a thousand by the end of the week. And yet that's in all of the restricted resources that we've got with people at the front line, the ITU beds and the overwhelming of the NHS. And in fact, the reason we've gone into a lockdown, sadly, is that in some areas we predict the NHS to be overwhelmed in 21 days time. So that is shocking. Something I would never have expected to see or hear in my professional career of a, a massive health system, despite the bed losses and reduction in beds over the last 10 to 15 years. I still wouldn't have said that we are going to overwhelm the National Health Service in around about 21 days if we don't absolutely get on top of this. Now, and all we can do is say, Will people learn around the world to try and close this down as quickly as possible with the vaccination? And The WHO have approved um, the, the Bionta Pfizer vaccine today for emergency use, is my understanding. So we're in dark times, but light is at the end of the tunnel if we can get this vaccination program out quick enough. But do we have the resources to get it done quick enough? And is there a risk of mutation beyond and, and resistance to the vaccine? Uh, I suppose those are questions we won't
0: know. No, I don't think we do. First of all, let's talk about the totality of what we've just said, right? We're now nine or ten months into this thing in most of the Western world, and fundamentally, we've not made progress, right? Britain is shutting down completely again. U.S. is seeing two to two hundred fifty thousand new cases a day, which is a frightening number. And starting to overwhelm health systems at which rate, at which point mortality rates go up. Um, health workers are exhausted. And, um, for different reasons on both sides of the pond, there's skepticism about the kind of lockdown that is necessary to make this work. So the hope has been the vaccine would be the solution, right? Uh, last month in health affairs magazine, Um, A group of folks um, published an article, one of the authors being Dr. Rochelle Walensky of Mass General, who is now uh, to become Biden's Center of Disease Control Director. The paper talked about the relative value of having a highly effective vaccine and a highly effective social management program. Um, David Leonard wrote this up in an article in the New York Times. I'll just quote a, some of the numbers in his article. He said, basically, he asked the health affairs authors to put their findings into a way non-scientists could understand. And this is what you get. If we assume the vaccine is 95% effective and we're running new infections at the rate that we are right now, in the next six months, we will see 10 million more Americans getting that virus as against about 20 million so far. So 50% more people will get the virus, and we'll see more than 160,000 additional deaths. Those numbers are brutal. Here's the converse. If the vaccine was only 50% effective, but we could get the case rate back to where it was in September, which is 35,000 cases a day, not the seven times that, that it is now, that would keep the death rate to about 60,000 people. So if we were willing to go into severe lockdown and the vaccine didn't work that well, we'd be 100,000 lives in the U.S. and several million cases ahead of where we will be with a 95% effective vaccine and uh, inadequate social um, controls. That specifically is the rationale behind giving one dose instead of two which is for the individual who gets the vaccine, getting two is a lot more protection. But with with this new variant, 62% looks pretty good if you can get twice as many doses out there. And you can get people to be more socially responsible because they feel more hopeful. So it's a real dilemma. And I expect some of the things that we'll see for fatty liver patients, right, is they'll have a harder time getting seen. Clinical trials will probably fall off further than we might have anticipated otherwise, although I'm going to leave it for Stephen Ronald to talk about what that means. And um, the more demoralized healthcare workers become and the less willing um, societies at large become to live with these strictures, the problem only gets worse.
1: Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast.
0: Again, this is Roger Green. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation, or the entire conversation idea in general, please send an email to me at questions at surfingnash.com. We are releasing three conversations in total from this episode. Our next new episode will release on Thursday, January
2: 14th. Stay safe and see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.